Good to see you here in week 13. Glad you could make it. Hand up if this is your very last thing for the semester. This is it. A few. Hand up if you've got more stuff on tomorrow. You have to turn up to campus again tomorrow. Ah, the hardcore. Well done. Well, I want to take you on an imaginative journey. So you can put aside the university for a moment and come with me on this little journey. There you are in the store and you're searching for the perfect gift. Just the right gift that will say exactly what you're a bit afraid to say. That it'll say, I really like you. Or, I care a lot about you. You're very important to me. I'm quite devoted to you. Maybe this gift, as you search among the scarves and the jewellery and the books and the imported chocolates, maybe this gift might even say, I love you. <laughs> maybe it will. Have you had that experience? Have you had that sort of... Uh, inner existential turmoil <laughs> as you're standing there. I certainly have. Uh, for me, I was searching through the expensive glass and crystal ware, looking for a gift for a particular woman's 21st who I was too gutless to say anything to, but who I, I, was, I was spending way above my normal 21st sort of, you know, level. And this was, I'd rejected the standard, hey, let's all chuck in 25 bucks and get a group present. I'd rejected that as offers. I was going to buy something myself. It was going to be expensive. And it was going to say, I really like you to this particular woman. Change of scene. There's Jesus at a dinner party in the custom of the day, reclining. You sort of lay on your side to eat the dinner, your feet sort of all fanning out away from the table. And his good friend, Mary, comes up to him, breaks open a jar of perfume and pours it all over Jesus' feet while he lies there at the table. And then she lets down her hair and wipes the perfume off his feet. This was no ordinary gift of perfume. We read there, if you've got your Bible open there in John chapter 3, it'd be, John chapter 12, sorry, it'd be really useful. You can see the account of it as John records it for us in verse 3 of chapter 12. It took about half a litre of pure nard an expensive perfume. Nard came from a plant in India. This, this perfume had travelled a very long way. Half a litre of it, you think, oh, what's that worth? Well, Judas, down in verse 5, one of Jesus' disciples, tells us it's worth 300 denarii. A denarii was sort of a day's wage for a manual labourer. So, I don't know, in Australian terms, let's say 300 days at the national minimum wage. What's that get you? about $30,000. So half a litre of perfume worth 30K. That's a fairly expensive bottle of perfume to pour on someone's feet. This is an incredibly extravagant gift. Why was she doing it? Why was she doing this for Jesus? 
Well, Mary had a lot to be thankful for. If you've just read chapter 11, the chapter before, we've already met Mary and her brother, Lazarus. Do you remember the story about Lazarus? Lazarus died. Tragically, very sad. He dies, but Jesus, incredibly, four days later, brings Lazarus back to life again. An incredible miracle. Does Mary, Lazarus's sister, have lots to be thankful for to this Jesus? Absolutely. Jesus is her friend and her Lord, and he raised her brother from the dead. She has, she has a lot to be thankful for. But $30,000 worth of thanks? That's a lot of money. That's a lot of perfume to pour on someone's feet, even if they have raised your brother. Is, is Jesus really worth that? Interesting, Judas doesn't think so. Judas, one of the twelve, he's there, and you can see what he says in verse uh, 5. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Not an unreasonable expectation. In fact, isn't it Jesus himself who said, you should sell your possessions and give the money to the poor? So, see, like Judas is onto something here. Maybe that is how the money should have been spent. But Jesus says here, what does he say, verse 7? Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Mary intends this, we assume, as some sort of extravagant act of devotion and thanks to Jesus for what he's done for her and her family. Jesus reinterprets it. And Jesus says, actually, this was a preemptive anointing of my soon-to-be-dead body. A preemptive anointing for my burial. I'm not dead yet, I soon will be. She's anointed me ahead of time. That is, Jesus says, this extravagant, expensive gift of perfume is actually an expression of the value of my death. It shows how valuable, it's a little signpost to how valuable my death will be. The Jewish custom was that you would anoint a dead body with spices and perfumes so that it didn't smell as bad. And Jesus says, Mary's just got in ahead of time and she's used this super expensive perfume because my death is so valuable and important. Now, we're going to come back to a little bit more about Jesus' death because it features a lot in this particular chapter as we understand it. But that's given you the opening sort of picture of this particular chapter. Now, as I reflect on what's happened here, it made me think of two things. It made me think of, first of all, a simple observation and secondly, a challenging question that comes from the observation. The simple observation from this story is, I guess, you give somebody, what you, what you give somebody depends on what you think of them, right? That makes sense, right? What you give somebody depends on what you think of them. So, I went looking for a very expensive piece of crystal, a crystal vase, because of what I thought of this particular woman. Mary thinks very, very highly of Jesus, and so gives the bottle. You, because you love and adore the people that you live with, your family, your flatmates, that's why you give them the best of your time and energy and attention and 
Usually, what you give somebody reflects what you think of them, right? That's what's normally the case. So that's the simple observation. What you give depends what you think of them. Here's, this, here's the challenging question that comes out of that, though. What would you give to Jesus? If what you think of somebody determines what you give them, what would you give to Jesus? Now, I want to show you that this is not some random question that I, as I just sat there and read the passage, and said, oh, Mary gave that, I wonder what I would give to Jesus. To show you that it's not just some random sort of question that I've just sort of dreamt up, I want to show you that actually this whole chapter of John's Gospel, time and time again, the issue in the chapter is what response do people make to Jesus? It's the whole chapter, in some ways, is about the response people make to Jesus. So, in, the, in a way, what you, would you give to Jesus? Let me show you. There's five places where it comes. The first one we've just done, Mary, her response to Jesus, she gives to Jesus this very extravagant gift of perfume. But then what happens after that? Well, what happens next is the next day, we're told, here if you look from verse 12 onwards, the next day Jesus enters Jerusalem, the capital city, riding on a donkey, which is sort of a symbol of Israel's king, rides into the city on a donkey, and the crowds, we read, gather, and they acclaim him with their praise, and they say, here is the king of Israel, here's the one who's come to save us, here's the one who's come from God. That's what they say. They're full of, what do the crowds give to Jesus? They give him their praise. But there's something dodgy about their praise. There's something that's not quite right about it. If you have a look there in chapter 12 at verse 17 and 18, you can see there, now the crowd that was with Jesus when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they heard that he had given this sign, went out to meet Jesus. Why are the crowds coming out to meet Jesus? It's not because they've decided that he is the Christ, that he is the one come from God. He's not, they've not come out to listen to him particularly. They've come out because, hey, he did, have you heard? He did this amazing thing. He brought Lazarus back from the dead. Let's go and find him because who knows what he might do next. They're coming out because of the sign, not because of come out for Jesus himself. There's something a bit dodgy about their belief. And if you go later in the chapter, down to verse 37, you can see John comments, even after Jesus had done all these signs, in their presence, the crowd would still not believe in him. So even though they might praise him, it's an empty praise. They're praising him with their lips, but not with their lives. So we've had Mary's gift of perfume. We've had the crowd's empty praise. Keep going through the chapter. Get down to verse 20. The third time response appears here. We read there that now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was one of the disciples, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. They want to meet Jesus. Now, these Greeks, they're not Jews, right? They're, they're, they're Gentiles, non-Jewish people. come up to the feast and now they actually want to come and spend time with, have an interview with, meet with Jesus person to person. You've got non-Jewish people coming to Jesus who is the Jewish Messiah. What's the big deal about that, you say? Well, no, that's a massive deal. When the world 
starts coming to the Jewish Messiah and wanting to attach themselves to him, that's a really significant deal in the big story of what God's doing in the world. If you go right back to the Old Testament, remember last week I talked about three shadowy figures of the Old Testament, the servant of the Lord, the son of man and the Christ. In the servant of the Lord passages in Isaiah, we're told that the servant of the Lord will be a light to the Gentiles and that the Gentiles will flock to him for salvation. Now what happens here is these Greeks come and they can't get to Jesus so they send a message by one of the disciples, they say, hey, we want to meet, and so Philip comes to Jesus and says, hey, there's a bunch of Greeks out there who want to meet with you. What does Jesus say? Show them in? No, that's not what he says. He understands the significance of this moment. What does he say? Have a look there. Jesus replied in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very key phrase, the hour has come. Do you remember way back, were you at EU public meetings in week one of, semester, of the beginning of semester? We talked about Jesus turning water into wine and Jesus' mum comes to him at the wedding feast in Cana and says, oh, but Jesus, they've run out of wine. And Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And if you trace that phrase through John's gospel, time and time again, Jesus keeps saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And this is the moment where he says, now my hour has come. Why? Why now? Because the world, the Gentile world, has now come and said, we want in on whatever you're offering. Jesus goes, this is the servant of the Lord moment. This is the moment that we know about from the Old Testament prophecies. Now is the hour for all of God's plans to come about into fruition right now. So what do these Greeks give to Jesus? They give Jesus their allegiance. They're giving him their allegiance, their desire to be in with whatever he's offering. That's the third sort of response we see in this passage. Fourth response, I mentioned before, down in verse 37, John makes the comment, even after Jesus had done all these signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. The crowds won't believe in Jesus. Someone asked me last week after, I think it was Thursday public meeting, Someone actually said, how come the religious leaders and the powers that be, they wouldn't believe in Jesus? Why wouldn't they believe in Jesus? Maybe they shouldn't have believed in Jesus. After all, if you heard of someone doing miracles, you'd be a bit sceptical, wouldn't you? You Surely scepticism is the rational, reasonable first response. Well, I would say that two things. First of all, Jesus did a lot of miracles. (laughs) He kept doing them over and over and over and over again for three years. It wasn't just isolated. It was a lot of... That says something. It wasn't a one-off event. But John now here gives an explanation for why they wouldn't believe. So have a bit of a look at it. He quotes from Isaiah the prophet twice. First thing he says in verse 38 is, This, that is their unbelief, was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He's quoting here Isaiah uh, 53, verse 1, and it's a servant of the Lord passage. In this passage, the servant, this mysterious Old Testament figure, the servant of the Lord, says, Lord, 
who has believed our message? That is the message you gave me to speak. I've been speaking, but who has believed our message? Answer, no one. And to whom has the arm of the Lord or the acts, your acts, your actions been revealed? It's been revealed to them, but they've still not believed. And now what John is saying is that servant of the Lord passage that they wouldn't believe the message and they wouldn't believe the acts, that has now come to fulfillment in Jesus, the servant of the Lord. So, of course, we should expect that some wouldn't believe. We knew that was going to be true for the servant of the Lord. Some would not believe the words, they wouldn't believe the actions, and Jesus says, well, he's a servant of, John says he's a servant of the Lord, so that's why they haven't believed. But then he gives a second reason. Verse 39, for this reason they could not believe... Because as Isaiah says elsewhere, this time from Isaiah chapter 6, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Now this particular passage comes from Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah is commissioned as a prophet. And what happens there is the Lord says, who will go for me? And Isaiah says, I will go, send me. And then the one true living God says, okay, I'm going to send you and you're going to say my words, but the people will not believe you. And the reason they won't believe you is because I am going to harden their heart so they won't believe you. Because if they did believe you, they might turn and be saved. And I'm not going to have that happen this time. So there's a bit of a backstory there, right? God's people, over a long period of time, had had prophets sent from God and say to them, come back to God that you might live. Come back to God that you might live. And time and time again, they had rejected the message. Rejected the message, rejected the message, rejected the message, rejected the message. And the truth, one of the truths of God is, God's patience does have an end. God does eventually say, time out. And you reap what you sow. And in Isaiah's day, God's people had so rejected the Lord over and over and over again that God says, your particular ministry, Isaiah, will be a ministry of judgment. You will preach the message and they will not turn because I'm hardening their hearts. They have hardened their heart against me so many times. Now it is time, tragically, for their judgment. And what John is saying is, that is what is going on, not just in Isaiah's day, but that was what was going on in Jesus' day. Think about the continuous history. Even though they rejected the message that came through the prophet Isaiah. God's people continued to reject and rebel against him, didn't they? All through history. In fact, even in Jesus' own day, when Jesus, the one from God, comes amongst them, the servant of the Lord, the son of man, the promised Christ and Messiah, what do God's people do when their, when their king finally arrives? What do they ultimately do? You know how the story ends. They kill him. You can't say your heart is for the one true living God when you kill his son. So far 
had the hearts of God's people wandered away from the one true living God so far that God says, time is over. You've hardened yourselves against me now. You will be hardened. And you will be judged. That's why they didn't turn. Because God hardened their heart. Now, even... Oh, yeah. That's the fourth response in the, in the chapter. There's a fifth response as well. Fifth response, verse 42. Yet, John says, even at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. And you're thinking, great, well, at least some believed. Then he goes on. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved praise from people more than praise from God. Yet again, we have another sort of dodgy belief. The leaders believe in Jesus in the sense that they decide Jesus is the Christ. He really is the promised one of God, the one who's come. But they won't act on it. It's a cognitive assent without action, without actually a life commitment. If you really think Jesus is this person, then you own it. And you say, he's from God. I'm standing up for that in, in the light of God. But they were more worried about what other people would say. So they didn't act on it, which reveals their heart, ultimately. So five times through this chapter, you get the issue of response. What sort of response are you making to Jesus? Which is why I'm saying to you that the question, what would you give to Jesus, is a very reasonable question to ask when you look at the whole of this chapter. Yeah? Now, that's the question, right? What would you give to Jesus? I said that that was sort of based around a fairly simple observation. The simple observation is what you give to somebody depends on what you think of them. Well, I guess the question then is, first of all, what do you think of Jesus before you determine what to give him? Now, this chapter helps us, right? This chapter presents a picture of Jesus to you through all the different things that happened in this chapter. If I had to summarise it, I would summarise the chapter's presentation of Jesus with three things. I would say, this chapter presents Jesus as the promised king who came from and reveals God the Father. And thirdly, who dies to bring life to others. I think that's the presentation of Jesus in this chapter. The promised king who comes from and reveals God the Father who then dies to bring life. You can see each of those three things. The promised king, he comes in as a king and the crowds, even with their empty praise, acknowledge here is the king. Throughout the rest of the chapter, Jesus talks about himself using that phrase we saw last week, the son of man. Remember the son of man from Daniel chapter 7? Who was the son of man in Daniel chapter 7? He's the one who comes to the ancient of days, who comes to, the, to God on the clouds of heaven and receives sovereign power, ruling power, and receives universal worship. Son of man is a ruling type title. Jesus in this chapter is presented as the promised king, the Christ, who's the son of who he is who reveals and comes from the Father. You can see this in the chapter 
in, uh, say, verse 44, Jesus says, When a person believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. If you believe in Jesus, you're actually believing in the one he sends. Then he says in verse 45, When you look at me, you actually see God the Father. And then he says in verse 49 and 50, How you respond to my words is actually how you respond to my father's words because I just say whatever my father gives me to say. See, Jesus reveals the father. How you respond to his words is how you respond to God's words. How you, what you see there is what you is seeing the father. When you believe in him, you're believing in the one who sends him. So he's the king who comes from and reveals the father who dies to give life. Now, it's very interesting the way John has set up this chapter and narrated it for us. You have Jesus' entry into Jerusalem riding on the donkey, right? And they're all saying, here's the king, here's the king. The crowds are going crazy, saying, here is the king, the Messiah. And either side of that, Jesus can't shut up about his death. They're yelling out, here comes the king who's going to save us, and Jesus keeps talking about his death. The pretty clear setup of how this king is going to save. So before he comes in, you had Mary had her gift, and Jesus reinterprets the gift of perfume as a preemptive anointing, pointing to the the extreme value of his death. After he comes in to Jerusalem, you have the Greeks coming. The Greeks who come and say, "We want to meet Jesus." Jesus says, "Now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified." But look at what he says next. You're thinking, son of man glorified. You're thinking, Daniel chapter 7, the son of man in this awesome sort of glorious spot receiving universal worship. You're thinking that, but what does Jesus say in the next sentence? Verse 24, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. He talks about his death. The way that the Son of Man is actually going to be glorified is by dying. The way to glory is through death. And Jesus is saying, and if you want to serve me, You're going to have to follow me, losing your life in order to reap eternal life. Jesus can't shut up about his death. Now, I know it's Thursday of week 13. This is a, what I should do, what you would love me to do is just do a bit of a song and a dance, keep you entertained, and then we're all happy and good. I cannot do it. Partly, I can't dance or sing. But, uh, but I, I cannot do it because Jesus, having started to talk about his death, there's this, this fantastic couple of verses from verse 31 to 33. Three little verses where Jesus says three things about his death. If you wanted sort of a a quick sort of theology of the cross, a quick sort of, just tell me the, some of the key things I need to know about the cross of Jesus, you, would, you could do a lot worse than just look at these couple of verses because Jesus says three things about his death here which are worth, in, worth thinking about and engaging with. 
The first thing he says in verse 31 is, he says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Then the second thing he says is, now the prince of the world will be driven out. And the third thing in verse 32 is, now I will draw all people to myself. Three truths about what Jesus will achieve when he dies from Jesus' own lips. The first thing, and I'll spend more time on this one, is, is now is time for judgment on the world. How is Jesus' death judgment on the world? It sounds more like judgment on Jesus when he dies. How is it judgment on the world? Well, I think it goes like this. It's like I said before. When they kill Jesus, it reveals just how far their hearts are from God. It seals their rejection of the one true living God. It's the final piece of incriminating evidence that they really don't love their God. And this is despite Jesus' urgent appeal there in verses 35 and 36. He says to them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you might have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he's going. Put your trust, or literally believe in the light while you have it, so you may become children of light. Despite Jesus' urgent plea to them, they still don't believe. The fact that they are going to kill Jesus will be the judgment on the world. This is where their hearts really are at. God's people have wanted so far from him that they've killed his son. Secondly, it's where the prince of this world is driven out. Now, the death of Jesus in the New Testament is consistently referred to as the moment where Satan, the evil one, is defeated. Again, the cross looks like a defeat of Jesus, but actually it's a defeat of the evil one, of Satan. How is Jesus' death on the cross a defeat of Satan? Well, what's Satan's weapons against you, if you're a Christian person? His weapons against you are all to do with temptation and sin, right? He loves to tempt you so that you can might then fall into some sort of sin, and why? because he knows sin is destructive to you. He loves to do things that are destructive to you. He doesn't want your good. And he knows that the just punishment for sin is death. Yay, that's great from his point of view. Great. The more of you who die, the better. He hates you, the evil one. So how does Jesus dying drive out the prince of this world? Well, because when Jesus dies as our representative and substitute, He takes all of our sin. He dies for the sins of the world, John the Baptist says at the beginning of John's Gospel. And then he takes the punishment for those sins in dying our death for us. Consequently, the evil one has nothing left with which to accuse you. My sins have been paid for. My death has been died. The evil one no longer has anything with which to accuse you. He's been dethroned. He's been depowered. Oh, he still roams around like a roaring lion looking to devour you, but he's teethless. He's toothless. If you resist him, he will flee because Jesus died for you to be driven out. And finally, he says there, now's the moment when I will draw all people to myself. Well, we've seen this actually in the Greeks as they representatively come to Jesus going, we want in on what you're offering, the salvation that you're offering. We want part of that too. 
He says, now when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. That's what Jesus achieves there in the cross. Okay, so this is the presentation of Jesus in this chapter. The promised king revealing the father who dies to give us life. So that's who Jesus is. Let's return to our question. What would you give to Jesus? What would you give to Jesus? Well, I guess actually in light of the way this chapter has presented Jesus, that's actually not the first question you ask. The first question should be, what's Jesus given to me? I mean, what what hasn't he given to you? He's the king who reveals the father who died to give you eternal life. He's given everything to you, right? That's a starting point. The son of man who came not to be served by you, but to serve you and give his life as a ransom for many. That's the starting point, what he's given to you. But then, yes, you do need to make some response to him. What, what, you, what are you going to give him? What are you going to give him? What does he want from you? Well, it's pretty easy what he wants from you. It's there time and time again throughout this whole chapter. What he wants from you is belief. He wants your faith, your trust. He wants you to trust his words. He wants you to trust his wisdom. He wants you to trust his perspective on reality. He wants you to trust his promises. He wants you to trust, to believe, to to be a person of genuine faith in him. That's what he wants. He doesn't want your nard. He wants your faith, your trust. Now that, that is just so simple. And it's so huge, isn't it? It's simple, but it's massive. How did Jesus himself describe it there in verse 25? The person who loves their life will lose it, while the person who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Are you surprised by human generosity when you see it? I mean, we like to think, no, we're very generous as people, but we betray ourselves because the moment, you know, that someone does something really generous, we all go, ooh, wow, imagine that. Like, clearly we... Don't expect massive amounts of generosity from one another. You know when you see the little kid, the two-year-old, playing with their very favourite toy, whatever it is, and then you as the uncle or the aunt or whatever come down, you get down and you say hello, and then in an astounding act of generosity, they offer you their favourite toy. You know that moment? Or, or the organ donor who gives a kidney so that someone else might live. Or the lifesaver, or the person in the armed forces who gives their life that you might live. What would happen if Jesus did turn up to your house for a dinner party? What would you give him? I guess I'd give him whatever he wanted. You want more food, Jesus? Have as much, have all the food. Take it all. You want my car? 
have my car. Have my car, Jesus. I, don't, I could buy another one, frankly, but you just have my car. You, you want money? I'll give you money. I've got a job. I've got to earn more money. Like, you can have all my money. Have my money. Have my car. Have my... Do you want somebody to sleep? I'll sleep on the couch. Oh, it's a pretty comfortable couch anyway. I'll sleep on the couch. You, you have my bed. I'll just tidy it up first, right? Like, just, I'll give you whatever you want. Oh, what was that? You want my time. Oh, I could give you a bit of time. Oh, you want all my time. All, I mean, all my time. I, d- I don't know if I can give you all my time, Jesus. I mean, you want my career. I've got a fair bit invested in sort of where I'm hoping I can go. I've got some aspirations and ambitions. I mean, you want my career. You want my patience. You want me to be patient with them. That's a bit tricky. You sure you don't just want more dinner? I mean, that's much easier. I could just give you that. Like, you want me to repent. You want repentance. You want me to stop going to that place. You want me to stop looking at that. You want me to stop doing that. That's hard, actually. I, I'm going to need some real help from you, Jesus, if that's what you want me to do. Like, what would you give him? What does he ask for? He just asks for you to believe him, to trust him. That's simple, but it's huge because it actually, it's everything. It is your nard. It is your car. It is your time. It is your career. Will you give all of that to Jesus? Will you give him your career? Will you give him whether you get married or not? Will you give him where you choose to live? Will you give him everything? See, with Jesus, you can't, it's not a little, you can't have just a little bit of Jesus. <laughs> you can't have just a little bit of Jesus in your life. With Jesus, it's everything or it's nothing. The one who loves their life now says Jesus will lose it. But the one who hates their life now believes in me will have eternal life. What will you give Jesus? He wants you to be a child of light with eternal life. What will you give him? So one thing that Christians do uh, in response to hearing God's word and uh, in worship and praise of him um, is to sing. And so I'm now going to invite some people down to lead us in song. Uh, So we're going to sing Jesus paid it all in response to this without a bridge. So be warned. Can you guys hear that? I hear the Saviour say 
Thy strength indeed is small, child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Now indeed I find Thy star and Thine alone And change the level, the heart of stone Jesus paid it all All to Him I owe Sin had left a Crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. When before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat Jesus paid it all All to Him I owe Sin had left a crimson stain He washed it white as snow Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. He washed it white as snow. Lord God, we give you great praise and great thanks that because of the gift of your Son, we can know you. We thank you that. Jesus died to bring us life and that through that we do not have to fear punishment and judgment if we believe in you. Lord, help us to think deeply about what we would be willing to give to you. Lord, remind us of the great sacrifice Jesus made for us that we didn't have to die. And Lord, may we commit our time, our patience and everything in our lives to him. Lord, I pray that as we go into the holiday period, um, Lord, help us not to um, be too stressed or bogged down by our assessments, but Lord, help us to have great perspective um, of your love and your approval of us. Lord, thank you for public meetings and that we can join together, worship you, praise you, hear from your word without fear. And Lord, we pray this all in the name of your son and for his honour. Amen.